0: sports radio 104.3 the fan every saturday morning it's terry wickstrom outdoors terry takes you inside the outdoors you know hunting fishing camping it's terry wickstrom outdoors now here's
1: terry good morning we're back we're waiting for will dykstra to join us. should be any minute we're a little bit ahead of his call but he's going to talk some big game and a couple things that are near and dear to my heart and one for that one of that is spot and stock deer hunting and the other is calling and i think will's with us now good morning will good
2: morning terry
1: you know i was looking at the notes and you're going to talk about spot and stock for archery deer and then some calling for elk those are two topics that really because i love spot and stock hunting but why don't you take us through the deer hunting first
2: you know so terry this time of year uh it, uh, and when I say this time of year, you know, archery season starts on September 2nd, all this stuff, West I-25. And, and for those of you guys that are guys and gals that have an, an archery deer tag, um, hopefully you've you've put your time in. I know Nate's, Nate's really pounded um, scouting and learning the animals that you're hunting and, you know, even trying to, to hunt a specific animal. Um, but with all that said, early in the season, and, and it's kind of funny the two topics we're covering today, they're kind of a tale of two different animals, literally. Um And with that said, early in the season, especially with mule deer, um, when you're hunting them with a bow, you've really got to spend, you know, I I always say spend more time watching them than you do actually hunting them. And the reason you want to do that is, I mean, it's like we're going to talk about in a second with the elk. Elk are starting to get into the rut, and it's getting to be that time of year where they're, you know, maybe start thinking with something other than their head. Well, these mule deer, they're still, um, you know, putting the food bag on. They still got some antler growth to go. Um, for the most part for most of our tree season and these these bucks especially your big bucks are going to are going to hold up they're going to they're going to spend uh, a lot of time at dawn and dusk out and then the rest of the day they're going to be bedded down for the most part and in doing that you really want to focus you know like our topic is on spot and stock hunting and, and I emphasize the spot aspect of that more than anything because if you can watch these deer and, and learn their patterns and learn their habits you can almost set up you know from an ambush standpoint but when we're talking about spot and stock deer hunting it's a uh, it's kind of a game where you want to use you the windier advantage big time not just making sure that you're down or uh, on the downwind side of the side of the animals you're hunting but also to use it as a bit of a noise shield um, you know especially when we're talking about mule deer up in the high country and this time of year i personally like to focus on on a lot of that stuff that's that's at tree line right around tree line because these here, like i said spend a lot of time feeding in dawn and dusk and then they're gonna bed down in these big tall willow um you know shrub brush areas that you can't really see them i mean you can be 10 feet away from them five feet away from them sometimes and not even see them so it's really important to to not just, you know, use the wind to your advantage from a scent factor, but use the wind to your advantage from a um, sneaking up on them. And sometimes, especially up, up in that stuff above tree line, we get a lot of heavy winds, which can be challenging with archery. But with that said, using the wind to your advantage to cover the sounds that you're making a lot of times can really help you. And it's something that a lot of people don't think about using the wind to basically shield the sounds you're making to be able to sneak up on them. but You know, for me personally, when I'm talking about trying to get on a deer and, and, you know, I've done a a bunch of archery hunts that are kind of on our foothills areas, you know, where a tree line isn't an an option. What you want to do is you want to focus on um, their bedding areas or know where their bedding areas are and then know where their water is because those are the two things that are going to be consistent every day until they they've rubbed the velvet off and until they start, you know, kind of getting into that transition into the fall. So make sure you know where your water sources are, the best water sources. And also, you know, start patterning these deer. And a lot of times what I really like to do, and it's kind of a, um, if you can, it's kind of one of those situations where um, if you have a spotter with you, you know, if you're, if you're a solo hunter, it's a little bit more challenging. But I love um, having somebody that I can eat. I, I love going with guys just to spot for them because it's an opportunity to kind of Coach these guys on where they're going so they can sneak up on these deer, where they're bedded down. And, you know, a lot of time that's something that's nice about mule deer um, versus elk, even and especially versus whitetail, is even the big bucks are pretty curious. And if you get close to them, you know, we're camoed up this time of year. If you can get close to them and bump them out of their beds, I'm not saying like full on spook them out of there, but get close enough to them where they get a little bit nervous, they usually give you, you know, a couple minutes. Um, sometimes not that long, but they usually give you a little bit of time and that curiosity, like what's going on down there to get that shot. So again, I focus a lot of times if I have a spotter or if I'm spotting for somebody coaching that person or getting coached into the, into what we call the kill zone, where you can get in close and again with archery, with your archery gear, you want to really make sure you're making a good ethical shot. And, uh, and again, with the wind, that's a big factor too, up there with your, with shooting a bow is if you're, lots of guys are really, I see tons of Instagram posts, tons of Facebook posts with guys, you know, showing their their groups with their arrows at 80, 90, 100 yards, and that's great. But when we're talking about above treeline or, you know, adverse weather conditions, those aren't necessarily great shots to take. So A, make sure you're taking a good ethical shot. And again, with that type of terrain you're in, whether it's treeline or whether you're hunting some of the thicker brush on the front range, You can usually get pretty close to them in that, you know, 10 to 20 to 30, 40-yard range. It's it's still a really good shot. But, again, having the opportunity to get inside of that kill zone and not being afraid of, like I said, not spooking them, but bumping them a little bit to give you that good standing broadside shot. Now, as far as, you know, from a spot-and-stock standpoint, you want to be really careful not to completely – You know, we call booger them out or spook them out where, you know, you could be working a deer for two, three days patterning them. And if you push them too hard, you're going to end up pushing that critter completely out. So, again, you just want to ease in. It's kind of like finesse fishing where you're you're just, uh, you know, testing the water, if you will, getting close to these animals, taking a chance, but not pushing them so hard that you're going to blow them out.
1: I couldn't agree more, and I love spot and stalk. I used to do that a lot in Minnesota, even with whitetails, and I just love being able to use the elements to get close, and it just felt like a more satisfying hunt than just hunting from a blind. Let's switch to the elk real quick before we run out of time, and here now we're talking the opposite type of thing. You're going to communicate with them, but I think you're going to probably say something that I think is one of the biggest mistakes a lot of people make, and that's overcalling.
2: It is, Terry, and if anybody anybody that knows me that's hunted with me or spent any kind of time in the woods with me knows, I love having a call in my mouth. I love communicating with the elk. It's kind of one of those things, I almost prefer being the guy calling than, than the shooter because I just love calling elk, communicating, and just seeing the different uh, responses you get out of cows and bulls. But something early season, you know, when we're talking, you know, when it's still hot, whether you're hunting way up high in the high country or whether you're hunting some of these front-range units, um a lot of people really just fall in love with the idea what they see on tv they fall in love with the idea of you know doing a three four five note bugle with five grunts at the end of it and chuckles and they think that that's how they're going to kill elk because or harvest elk because that's how they see it done on tv well the reality is is unless you're hunting some of these completely non pressured areas that a lot of a lot of these hunts are done that you see on tv that's not how elk on public land typically act unless you're way away from the roads and you know hiking way in but the reality is and the mantra that we go by is early season you want to be an elk and i know it sounds simple to say that but early season if you act like the elk that are around you you will eventually fool them or eventually get inside that zone that you want to get inside to harvest that animal and when i say be an elk what i'm saying is do what the elk are doing. If you are getting up there early in the morning, you know, a lot of times we get up 2, 3 in the morning just to get on the areas just to see what kind of rut activity is going on, especially early in the season, the majority of your of the, the talking that the elk are going to be doing is going to be in the dark. And if you're not even hearing those elk talking at night, you have absolutely no business even having a call in your mouth, let alone um, blowing on it. Because the reality is, is those elk know something's up, that's not what's going on inside our unit right now and if you if you end up over calling you will scare those elk out now does that mean you shouldn't call at all i mean i'll, I'll be honest with you and, and like i said anybody that's spending any time in the woods with me knows i'm all i tend to do a little bit of what i call prospecting or taking the temperature of the animals or the herd that i'm around and, and if i well a few soft cow calls and don't get a response i know okay it's not the day um, if I get up there early, early, early in the morning, maybe blow one short bugle, and don't get a response, you know that's a that's a pretty good indicator that nothing's quite happening yet. But I'll tell you, I'll be the first one to say, you know, early season though can be some of the best time of the year to to get on elk and to call elk, and it's it's kind of that initial uh, first phase of the rut that these elk really get fired up, and you're you're talking about elk that haven't been hunted for. You know, six seven months at this point, and you know it's kind of like fishing unpressured fish. You know, you're going to get a chance at getting one of these animals to make a mistake. But the trick and the key is to absolutely not overcall because as soon as you overcall, you you could more than likely not just blow that herd out like we were talking about with deer earlier, but you could potentially shut those elk up for the season, especially that particular group of elk that you might be hunting, and they might know, you know, what we're just going to do our rut thing and and communicate you know minimally and because there's something else going on here i mean it's kind of not not to go off too far too far on a tangent but i know some buddies that hunt some of that stuff where there's a lot of wolves now in in the yellowstone area and up in idaho and the elk have learned not to talk up there because it gets them killed and they're no different down here they know if they start talking and all of a sudden people start honing in on them they'll just clam up and you might not have an opportunity even hunting talking elk if you're not if you're uh if you're not too or if you're not too careful
1: well we are out of time but if people want to talk to you guys more want more information they can find you at tightlineoutdoors.com and tightlineoutdoors on facebook is that right absolutely
2: you can uh you can message me personally too at will dexter on facebook and the same thing with nate
1: so all right my friend thank you for joining us. As always it's good to have you on hopefully you'll be back on on a more regular basis
2: Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Terry.
1: You bet. Will Dykstra from Tightline Outdoors. Great hunting and fishing resources, Tightline Outdoor guys are. We're going to take a time out, and we come back, we're going to talk to our dog trainer, Ben, on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented in
3: part by Jack's Outdoor Gear, locations up and down the front range to serve all your outdoor needs. Joining us from Hideaway Kennels is Ben Garcia. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, Terry. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, Hey, first, before I know we want to get into mistakes people make, hunting and things, how's the smoke affecting the dogs?
0: Uh, Well, I would generally say if it's affecting us, it's affecting them. And um, so I don't know about you, but out hiking around or out running dogs, you can definitely feel it on the lungs. So I, I would say... Keep an eye on your dog, watch their breathing, watch for some hacking. And if you have an older dog, probably keep them inside and not get out there in that smoke or wait till it burns off later in the evenings.
3: A little more difficult keeping them hydrated. I know I feel so dry with the smoke.
0: Boy, it is. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, it was What me and you always talk about is watching your dogs intake of water. And um, it definitely, the other day I was doing nothing. And I was like, I feel like I'm dehydrated, you know, and I realized it was from the smoke, you know. And so definitely something to keep an eye on. For your
3: dog. Yeah, always your great resource yeah. for those things. Hey, we, we were talking earlier in the week, and we're just, right. we're dove season and teal season are almost on us, and then won't be that long after that. It'll be, uh, you know, upland game, we'll get the quail right. and the pheasants a lot of people have been working dogs. Some have gone to people like you and they've had, they've had them trained and properly put in shape. Some of them aren't in shape. We'll talk about some of that too, but some people are, they're getting ready to hunt, but what are the mistakes they make when they do take, especially a new dog out hunting?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, there's, I'll break this down into three to two scenarios. Obviously upland that you brought up that dove season's coming up and then waterfowl. Um, I, I love both sports and for me, they're just a blast, but the first one for Upland that I've noticed out of you know 20 plus years being in this industry of guiding hunts and, and being on hunts with guys and our folks, um, generally the first thing I see happen is they get to a field, they start opening doors, slamming doors, let the dogs run around. They're hitting a whistle to call the dog back. They don't have any of their gear together. And next thing you know, you hear those birds popping and they're gone. And I, and I always tell everybody, you know, animals live in three different movements, fight, flight, fry, to freeze. You know I mean? They don't have much more than that. So, Treat upland hunting like you would if you were elk hunting. I mean, I know when I go elk hunting, it's every step is quiet. Every every To load the gun is quiet. And the same when you're hunting with a dog and upland hunting. So what I like to do is get out of the truck, get everything together, make sure everybody, my collar's turned on, make sure it's working, put it on my dog, and then let my dog out. Because I've seen it a lot where a dog just gets out and runs over to a bush to go to the bathroom really quick and pheasants or quail blow out of it. So I would really pay attention to you know how how you're handling getting out of the truck when you're buzz hunting, and, um, and and paying attention to those things because you'll scare them off. I mean they can hear you coming a half mile away, and, and if you're sitting there blowing a whistle, hitting your beeper, you, you just push all your game out right there.
3: What about an upland up hunt? Yeah. What about those dogs? You know, somebody who's new, they've got this loving relationship. They've been taking their dog in the field. They may be even playing with it out in the field. Now the right. dog wants to go for a ride. He gets out of the truck. He's all excited. Probably, the, how do you keep him from barking?
0: Well, that's why I leave him in a crate, to be honest with mean, Every year, unfortunately, we get a we get a phone call or the email, and I hate opening day in Colorado for this reason. Is It's where somebody let the dog run away out of the crate, nobody was paying attention to it, and the dog got hit by a car on some farm road out east, you know. And um, so that goes along with barking, that goes along with all those behaviors, is, is, is work towards it. You know, generally it's a great question, Terry, and then and, and I didn't get to it, but I'll get to it. The, the, how you prevent barking is if you're training and your dog's barking, eliminate it there. If you let your dog bark when you're training, it's going to do the same thing when you're out on a hunt. No, so, I-, I, mean, I,
3: gen-
0: yeah, I mean, I generally use my e-collar to, to eliminate barking on a dog because I don't want them barking on a hunt.
2: Well,
3: you know, that, so, that, that leads to another question, too, is if you're using an e-collar or certain types of right. equipment, you really have to have practice and use that equipment and have the dog used to it before you get in the field, right?
0: Absolutely. And that was one of my notes I had on here. So many times I've been out on a hunter's first hunt with their dog, they're excited, and, and we're kind of going through inventory before we get the dogs out. And I'm hey, you got your gun, you got your ammo, Yep, you got your orange, great. Where's your e-collar? And the guy goes, "Oh, let me go get it out of the box." You know, and and that's just where I cringe. You you know, knowing that we're going to go out on this hunt, he hasn't even practiced with it, and he doesn't know how to use the buttons. He doesn't know if it's charged. You know, and that's something you really want to be ahead of um, when you're going out in the field. Is how familiar you are with your equipment, any equipment. I mean, that's fishing, that's hiking, that's hunting. You want to know your equipment.
3: Well, an e-collar too. A lot of that is conditioning, not having to use it when you're hunting because you've conditioned right. the dog to know that when he has it on, certain behaviors aren't allowed.
0: Right. Or, or reward behaviors. I mean, like we always say, it's just a remote lease. That's all it should be, but they should know every command before you even put the e-collar on them, you know, and, and then practicing those things and working through them. And then that was one of the things I wanted to talk about is, is waterfowl hunting. You know I mean? There's been, there's been guns that have gone off in a blind or a pit because the dog's pacing in the blind or a pit. You know, and, and that goes back to your sit and stay work, not when you're out training. I mean, believe it or not, like if you did the time frame on how long a dog sits and stays on a mark in the water, it, it's probably two minutes, you know. And I always joke that duck hunting's five hours of sitting for five minutes of shooting. So if you're at home watching a game or if you're in the backyard with your dog that you waterfowl hunt with, make them sit and stay next to you. Make them get used to that. When, when dad's sitting down, I'm right next to him and I don't move. Because that's just going to be his blind manners when he gets into the blind. You know, you're just taking it for longer time so then the dog understands that when you're hunting in a blind or a pit.
3: Uh, it just makes sense. I mean, people people yeah. need to really think about what kind of activities you're going to do when you're hunting. You know, everybody envisions hunting the moment of the shot, and, right? And they don't. It's just like fishing. We all we all envision setting the hook, but we don't. Right. We don't go through all the other things that lead up to that point. And if you don't do those right, you don't get to the other point. And that's that's what right. happens. Now, what about feeding your dog when you're hunting? Do you feed them on right. a, the same regular basis? Do you change it up?
0: Yeah. So what, what I prefer to do, um, if it's going to be a short little hunt, you know, like we're just going to go, it depends on the hunting. You know, I mean, obviously if um, I'm going to be swimming my dog, and it's a duck day and, and it's cold. I generally give them a light breakfast and then feed them right after we're done hunting, after they've done the activity. For me, I like to rebuild that muscle. I like to refeed those calories into the dog after a hard workout. Um, the worst thing you can do is feed your dog a huge breakfast and then try to get him to run. And then he's got all that in there. And what they found in some studies is they're, they're spending so much calories to digest that food because dog food's gotten so high in calories. But their body's processing that food, that's that's the energy they could be eating as they go. So I generally like to give a light breakfast in the morning, and then let's say, like, I'm done hunting at 2. Then I'll give them a little bit bigger of a meal or their normal meal just to kind of refeed those calories and get back on it that night. But um, it, it goes along with uh, you do not want to feed your dog halfway through a hunt because, one, is they're overheated already. Their body temperature's up just from activity. And then they start trying to digest those calories. You can get into some, some problems if they're dehydrated with bloat. You can have some twisting in the intestines. the things you just really want to watch. It. And, that's, and that's every dog food manufacturer gives a really good recommendation on activity of how to feed the dog um, and how to watch. I tend to watch weather quite a bit more than some of those companies would tell you. So, like, if it's a super hot day. I may go with a little bit lighter of a meal, um, depending on our activity. If it's a cold day, and, and I know I'm going to have that dog in the water if I'm, like, hunting a river for ducks, I, I'm probably going to feed them a little bit more to give them some calories because to, to, they're shivering off the cold, which is burning calories, too.
3: I think the same thing would hold true. A lot of people take their dogs on hikes, and even if you're not hunting, right. the physical activity, I think the same rules would apply, wouldn't they? I
0: would, yeah. I mean, like, we may give, like, a little, you know, like, we feed our dogs with water. You know, I just like to make sure that belly's hydrated with the food. So we may put some water in their food that morning, give them a little bit of time to digest it, you know, before then, like I wouldn't feed at the trailhead. And um, and that's probably the point you're making is I I wouldn't be dumping food to them and then get them up the hill. So like, if you know, it's an hour drive for you to get somewhere to hike, feed them before you go, then they're going to go to the bathroom when you get there, walk them around, you know, make sure your leash is on, make sure you get them to, to go. And then you've ultimately fed that body some calories before they go. So now, no. if you're competing with dogs, sorry, sorry, if you're competing with dogs and you're gonna do a short window, you know, like when we would compete with dogs, if, if we ran at nine o'clock in the morning, we wouldn't feed that morning because we it was only you know, it'd be 45 minute run, they'd be gone on, and then we'd feed them right after. But if you're all day hunting, you want to make sure you're giving those calories to them in the morning and at night.
3: Do you change the diet or just change the, the portion?
0: I do not change the diet, which is a great question. The last thing you want to do is be, I mean, it's a stressful activity for a dog to even go on a hike, which is a joyful stress. But you're stressing some parts out on their body. So the worst thing you want to do is be switching food depending on what you're hunting. So generally, we feed the same food, which is a performance feed throughout the year. Some some trainers will go to a lower calorie food in the summer because they don't need it because of the heat. And um, they don't want the dogs to get too hot. So we'll, we'll actually keep the same food through. And I recommend that, like, generally to switch your dog's food is the two- to three-week time frame to switch it. But if you go, like, hey, I'm feeding my dog just the house food, and then I'm going hiking, I better dump some higher-calorie food in there. You're going to have stomach problems either that day or the next day you don't want to deal with it on your dog.
3: That's all so. great information. Is it too late if I've got a dog? that I want to hunt with, you know, we still got, we got dove right. season coming up, but we got pheasants. We're still, you know, we're still a couple months away or even more. Right. Is it too late to get it to you to start training?
0: Um, it, for our program, you're, yeah, probably. I mean, like we're now training dogs that are going to start hunting in November. Right. And, um, and, uh, so it wouldn't be depending on the trainer, depending on the dog's level. And, the, you know, I mean, if you have a dog with a problem, you may be there, but um, it seems as you know, Terry, everybody bought a dog in the last year and a half and, and that's flooded the dog trainers being availability too. So, I mean, there's, it's not just us. I mean, we're booking now into 2022 for dogs to train. And and I think a majority of, of reputable trainers are doing the same thing because everybody has a dog and everybody wants to be outside with them. And so, and I, and I know the obedience trainers are just as busy right now too, you know,
3: so if if I did get a dog, I haven't been able to get him to a trainer. This is the last question and we're gonna move on. Right. Can I still can I still try to hunt with them? Or should so I, would I recommend so, Or should that, I wait? Yeah.
0: A, yeah, it's a great question. So here's here's what I always tell people when they get a new puppy. So if they get a new puppy and it's ten weeks old and it's it's November and they're going hunting with the family and they want to take it out hunting. I always recommend if you can't get a train before hunting season, Leave him in the back of the car, leave the windows open, Leave or the truck, leave the, everything so he has air, but leave him in the crate. Um, you, you don't want your dog's first hunt to have a negative experience, and then they never want to hunt again. So what I do, I generally leave them in the car if I have a puppy. If I come back and I've got a rooster and I've got a bird or a duck, I get him out. I get him super excited about it. I may throw him some retrieves and just kind of get him used to being there. But I, I had a dog one time I trained. And um, on its first hunt, it, it was a 15-week-old puppy. They're out walking around. It hit a sticker patch and got cockaburrs and burrs in its feet. That dog never hunted again because ultimately what it learned is when it went out in the field, it got pain. And, and and they call it, like, the red stove theory, right? You touch the red stove, it's hot. You learn to never touch it again. So that's just where, like, I like to, if I can't get in for a trainer or they're just in that funky age, leave them in the truck, make sure they've got air, make sure they're cool. But bring them back and throw them a bird to the truck. Pat them up, let them know, hey, the crews here, everybody's going to pet you, give you a cookie, and you're going to have some retrieves, and then get them with the trainer. Um, we're blessed, and and we're so blessed at Rocky Mountain Roosters that we get a hunt till April. So really, if if you're in the time frame worrying about wild bird season, get it to a trainer, take a break, and come down to a preserve and do a hunt. That, that's a better solution than trying to hurry something, shortcut it, and then you have a problem.
3: All right, my friend, we are out of time. If people want more information or to book a training session with you, how do they get a hold of you? Yeah.
0: They can reach us through our webpage at hideawaykennels.com or find us on Facebook under Hideaway Kennels.
3: All right. Thank you. And I will, um, by the way, I will put this up on our Facebook page. And, uh, Ben, as, as always, we just love having you on the show. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Terry. Have a great weekend.
3: You bet. If you're a dog owner, you want more about this information, I'll put all this on our Facebook page, Terry Wicks from Outdoors on Facebook. We're going to take a quick time out. When we come back, we're going to talk to the folks at Colorado Clay's about the state of ammunition availability and getting ready for the upcoming hunting seasons on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoor Gear. Last week, Drew got the start and shine. Now You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on the fan. If you like some of what you're hearing on the show, tune in and join us every Saturday morning or follow us on Facebook at Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. A lot of the content on this show will end up podcast. We'll link to it there. Plus, we give up-to-date fishing reports. We give information on a lot of activities in the outdoors, just what's going on. It's a good place to be if you're an outdoor enthusiast. Let's go to the phones. And joining us, one of our favorite contributors, especially this time of the year, J.R. Pierce from Colorado Clays. Good morning, J.R.
4: Hello, and good morning to you, Terry.
3: You know, I was thinking specifically about the way you were going to jump on me now, because I have two two notes written on my, my sheet here, and one says doves and one says ammo. Well, that's a clash for me immediately, because because I need a lot of ammo when I dove hunt, and we're in a year when ammo could be an issue, isn't it?
4: Absolutely, Terry. There's a lot of, lot of points we can cover reference that. Fortunately, of course, Colorado Clays has been able to keep the, most of the popular calibers and gauges of ammo. So uh, if you have trouble finding it, but you need to do some practice, Terry, uh, come to Colorado Clays. We do have ammo for our customers to use at the range.
3: You know, and it it people go, well, I couldn't find the shot size I normally shoot. I couldn't find the same brand I usually shoot. I couldn't find a rifle uh, cartridge that I normally big game hunt with, which you really need to be working on right now. But one in particular, we'll talk about those more, but one in particular that jumps out at me, we're not very far from muzzleloader season, and people are having trouble finding the same powder and the same bullets. And it changes the trajectory so much in muzzleloading, doesn't it?
4: Well, Terry, and that's true with everything, and I think I should probably kind of lead into this with uh, a few facts here. So, of course, having recently been voted Colorado's number one outdoor shooting facility and and being Colorado's premier public shooting facility for the last 25 years, uh, we literally welcome tens of thousands of firearms enthusiasts from across Colorado and, and around the nation to our range every year. And, of course, these folks are of all skill levels from beginner to expert using All types of firearms, you know, pistols, rifles, shotguns, black powder, like you said, and so forth. And they're using these firearms for a wide variety of applications, whether it's, you know, just simply coming to the range for a day of target shooting, maybe practicing for home defense or concealed carry. Uh, We do a lot of practice for people competing in tournaments or competitions here uh, qualifying for law enforcement, military, and of course, like you said, prepping for the hunting from everything from doves to big game. And although we know there are many variables to improving accuracy, uh, ranging from individual technique to the type of gun, barrel length, you know, rifling twist rate, sights and optics, choke selection, etc., oftentimes one of the most drastic changes to overall accuracy can be achieved by simply experimenting with different ammunition types uh, weights and velocities until you find the most accurate load for you your gun and of course your intended uses But with the worldwide ammunition shortage still upon us and of course hunting seasons approaching fast we're starting to see a few things here terry that um, are are interesting in the fact that people are unable to find the ammo they want or they're being forced to use whatever is available to them and the perfect example of what you were talking about there, terry had a muzzleloader coming out getting ready for season last week uh... came out had the same powder he was good on everything but the projectiles even though they were the same weight had some different manufacturers we were able to get his gun on target at a hundred yards he ran out of his previous bullet and decided to just finish off with uh, a half box of whatever he had uh same weight everything and just changing one manufacturer to the next literally moved his point of impact six inches to the left and it was a good tight group to the left but it just goes to show regardless of what type of gun or what you're doing um, there are definitely some changes in accuracy from changing ammo And I think the moral there, Terry, is to be sure you finish your sight in session with the ammo you intend to use or the ammo you were forced to hunt with so that you have the confidence to make that clean, ethical harvest of whatever game you're pursuing.
3: I couldn't agree more. And first of all, we should emphasize before I make a couple other points that uh, Colorado clays is muzzleloader friendly. And kind of describe how a muzzleloader can practice there because you have a really open system.
4: Yeah, our open air system, Terry, is extremely friendly to muzzle loaders, and it's very comfortable to shoot in. Uh, we have a covered shooting area with padded benches, um, lights, radiant heat, everything you need in the shooting area, but downrange, rather than a closed-in building, we have an open air design, meaning there's no roof, we just have baffles. And what that does is allow you to practice in not, not only open light, but uh, open airflow, so those muzzle loaders have a tendency to make a little bit of smoke, but that smoke just dissipates and disappears at the Colorado, range, Colorado clays range. And depending on what type of hunting you're planning on, we do have prone, sitting and standing shooting practice options available. So really there's no better place to sight in than Colorado Clays if you have a muzzle loader.
3: Well, now, you also have a little starter kit for muzzle loading, and my thoughts would be, because you include some projectiles, I think, you can tell me what's in it, but if I can't find enough ammunition to get in all my practice, get my muzzle loader on paper where I want it, and then finish, like you said, so critically with at least a few shots of what I'm going to hunt with, could I start with that kit and what's in it and then switch just to the last few shots?
4: Yeah, and you know, Terry, this was the brainstorm of one of our uh, professional RSOs we have here at Colorado Clay's. And the whole idea was to take these guns. A lot of folks haven't shot for a while. A lot of folks need to start over, have different powders, what have you. So get this um, starter pack available at Colorado Clay's for just $10. It gives you some fifty caliber balls, some patches, and uh, everything you need. I believe he's even got some primers in there. So we will get this gun on paper using that cheap starter kit. Once we have it to where it is on paper at the ranges you'll be hunting, then you can take the loads that you prefer, the projectiles, and uh, dial it in. Because as we said, one load to the next can change drastically. So get the thing to where you can work with it, and then we can finalize it with the loads you intend to hunt with.
3: I couldn't agree more. Let's go through a couple of other scenarios too. Let's just say I'm sighting in my rifle and i'm you know i'm I'm comfortable at two hundred yards with my rifle, but I'm not going to tell anybody what their comfort level should be. Make sure that you really are comfortable. Don't take shots outside of your ability. It's not fair to the animal, but I come to the you know i've got I've got a box of of uh of the ammo ammunition I normally hunt with that I've normally sighted in with. Is it better for me, or can you tell, or is it just all over the board, whether if I have to buy some more to get the same grain weight for that bullet, or is it better for me but a different manufacturer, or stay with a different manufacturer and may change the bullet a little? What typically happens?
4: Well, again, Terry, and I think you kind of summed it up there, Uh, and we're seeing this right now. A lot of folks. Might have a half a box left over from last year. They may have found something It's not what they're used to. My recommendation and what our people are doing here, come out, do some three-shot groups with some of each, leaving yourself some to work with, find that most accurate load, and then finish dialing your gun in with that load and leave yourself enough to hunt with. As far as the preference, let the gun decide uh, which is the preferred load, And another thing, like you said, Terry, is um, sometimes we're not going to be able to do just what we want here in 2021, understand your limitations, and adjust the range of your shot in the field to meet your comfort level and, again, uh, to keep that harvest ethical. So that's really the the moral of the story. I think more and more people are seeing now how drastic um, of a change can Uh, come from just changing your ammo, and uh, I I really am glad to see people taking that to heart and uh, definitely encourage them to come out and do a session and find out what works in their equipment.
3: Two more points, and one is you talked about self-defense, concealed carry. Um, As you know, I do a lot of handgun shooting, and so does Karen, and she's almost as good as I am. You knew that, right? (laughs)
4: Still.
3: Still. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um yeah, she makes me look bad, but one of the things, and Karen and I run into this all the time you we buy you know we we buy all jacketed shells for practice. they're cheaper, we don't need them to expand, and we can shoot through a lot of them but and but yet, when we load the gun for self defense we put in specific self defense loads. I think enough people don't buy enough self defense loads that occasionally you have to run those through your gun. For two reasons. One is, does your gun function well with it? Just that change in shell, you don't want your self-defense gun jamming because of a different ammunition. And two, it's going to hit a different impact.
4: Absolutely, Terry. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And we do see this. uh, Even pistols, even short barrels, have uh, loads that will be inherently more accurate. Uh, Home defense rounds are built and composed a certain way for a reason but definitely verify that the load you are planning to use for home defense has the same points of aim and impact as your practice rounds. And there's so many variables. uh, Form and technique with a pistol can change things so much too. And making adjustments to your form, your technique, and practicing and repeating that over and over is also a good way to ensure accuracy, muscle memory, and uh, when when the time comes that you do need to use that firearm, uh, there's no doubt that you're able to do it do it safely and confidently.
3: Last point I want to spend a couple minutes on, and that's. Shotgunners, we got dove season coming up, and you and I always joke about it. I say, say it's a it's a conspiracy to sell ammunition because no one can hit a dove anyway. But but you know we joke about it. But it is a great sport, and it's a wonderful sport. But we've got dove, we've got teal, we've got waterfall, we've got upland game coming. People are worried about ammunition, so should I approach it by maybe coming to Colorado Clays and buying a few shells of different types of shot, and maybe try the patterning board and then trying them. Because if I can't get what I want, how do I decide what I should
1: go to?
4: Yeah, well, if you found some ammunition, Terry, you're not sure uh, if it's going to work well with your gun and your choke. I, and I always encourage time on the pattern board. So, yes, you can see uh, what choke provides, what diameter of pattern at different yardages, pattern density, et cetera. But the most common problem I see with people going out uh, feel like they should be right on, and they're not hitting anything is if they have a new gun, they made an adjustment to the gun or made an ammo change, is that their point of aim and point of impact are so far off and they don't realize it. So first thing we want to verify with that shotgun is that when you come up in your stance, have your sight picture, the bead is where it needs to be, that your pattern is centered over your target. And it's just mind-boggling how many times I see guns shooting up to a full pattern high or off to a side. And gun fit is a big factor that can be adjusted on a lot of the new modern guns. And then, of course, uh, most people just really don't know at 30 yards with an improved cylinder and the load they're using what the diameter of their pattern is and the density. So at the very least, it's interesting to see that. So when you're out on the hunt, it gives you an idea what you're dealing with, and it can actually improve your confidence knowing what's going on out beyond your barrel.
3: All right, my friend, we are running out of time. If people need to find Colorado Clays or want to talk to you more about these subjects, how do they do that?
4: Well, please give us a call, 303-659-7117, or go to the website, coloradoclays.com, leave us a message, take a virtual tour of the facility, and uh, by all means, plan a trip out, and uh, let's get ready for season.
3: All right, my friend, we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Thank you, oh, and, and my phone should ring about a bass fishing trip, I think.
4: Yeah, take it off, vibrate. <laughs>
3: <laughs> All right, we'll talk to you, Goodbye, Terry. You bet. Great people. Just gotten to know them so well. Great facility, great people. And I'll tell you, folks, this ammunition shortage is real. Um, if you're planning on hunting anything this fall... Make sure you can get enough of what you're going to hunt with to practice with and dial in your gun. It will make a huge difference. And, you know, you can't just don't, don't leave yourself having to grab something on the fly and hope that it works for you.
1: You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan, brought to you in part by Jack's Outdoor Gear. We're going to kind of wrap things up here. i got a few things I want to touch on. The first one is fishing. Uh... We're getting into the fall. We're going to see the water temperatures change, and we're going to see the fishing is actually going to get into some of the very best fishing of the year. Over the next few weeks, we'll try to keep you on top of that. But if you're new to angling or even if you're experienced, there's a few reasons why you want to take advantage of this. One is the fishing is going to be extremely good, and it's going to get better for a lot of different species. The techniques will change and how you approach it will change, but we'll help you with that. The other thing is that with school starting, With the hunting seasons taking off, you're going to see a lot less people on the water. There's less people out on the water because a lot of them are hunters, too. They're going hunting instead of fishing. A lot of them don't have the time off like they did during COVID, and school is starting. And you'll get some of the most popular waters on a weekday to yourself with great opportunities to catch fish. So it's a great, great time to get out. And uh, and really get into more fishing. And, and you can start doing things without spending a lot of money and a lot of gear. Like, uh, I was out on horsetooth yesterday. And by the way, not yesterday, a couple of days ago. By the way, if you go to my Facebook page, uh, Terry Wicksham Outdoors on Facebook, and scroll down a couple of posts, you'll see pictures. You'll see pictures of the lures, the tackle set up. And we'll talk about the depths we fished at. Now, we were drop shotting. And that's a pretty effective way, because we are catching fish from 20 to 35 feet deep, pretty effective way to keep a bait right in front of fish that are at that depth in the water column. But it's going to start to change, where pretty soon we're going to be looking at using what's called glide baits, or spoons, or, or blades. And they're they're all kind of presented similarly in similar situations, where the drop shot Uh, presentation is a feed it to them get them to eat it type presentation you're going to see a lot of bait fish getting stressed as the temperatures change a lot of opportunities for fish to eat so not sometimes as easy to just feed them the bait you need to get a reaction they will still hit reaction strikes glide baits are like jigging wraps and johnny darters and those type of baits Um, they were popular in ice fishing for decades but the last almost 10-15 years they've really taken off in open water and you fish them with a real usually a popping type cadence you try to get a reaction to them jigging spoons the same way and uh and the blade baits exactly the same way now most of those are better from a boat but you can do them from shore so those opportunities are just going to get better and better and when when i was out on horse tooth reservoir which has just been super crowded we were out on a wednesday and it virtually there was a couple other boats on the lake we had the lake to ourselves So there's going to be tons of great opportunities. Now, if you want to see some of these in practice, go to my YouTube channel, uh, The Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom. We take you like, we've got a jigging spoon, uh, almost tutorial, one we did at Pueblo and one we did at Lake McConaughey in those videos. And we show you how you approach those, how how you present them and how they work. And you can take that same approach with the glide baits and the blade baits to a point. So it'll get you started in that. So we're going to keep, moving you along as we get into the fall fishing because it's going to get really really good so stay with us every saturday from 9 to 11 here and then follow us on facebook at terry wickstrom outdoors there's another reason to follow us at facebook and one of those a couple reasons actually one is karen puts up uh a lot of links to our our YouTube channel so you can see those videos and go right to the channel. I think she's got one coming up on High Mountain Trout she's going to put up next week, and then she'll put the link up a few days after that. And we also are going to start doing trivia, and we're going to add something called the question of the day. It won't be every week, but we're we're starting to gather some really nice prizes. They're almost always $50 or more. And the trivia questions, we tend to put the answer to the trivia out on our Facebook page uh, before, uh, before we ask the question on Saturday. So you can read that post and you'll know the answer. So when we ask the trivia question, you can be one of the first ones to text or call in, depending on how we do it. The question of the day, we'll give you some heads up. We may not give the exact question or we may, but that's gonna be more of a drawing type thing where we'll get everybody's answers and, and we'll work on that. Last uh, week's question of the day, was what do you remember most, a fish you caught or a fish that you lost? And that's, we're going to have questions like that. So follow us on Facebook at Terry Wicks from Outdoors. Tune in every Saturday from 9 to 11. Every now and then we get bumped over to our sister station, ESPN, just because of a game. But we're on almost every week, and the podcasts go up almost immediately after, and you go to the um, 1043thefan.com, and you can listen to almost every interview we do on the show. It's been podcast. You can go back weeks and months. I want to say thanks to Kyle for helping make this show go. Thanks to Karen for keeping me in line. We'll let the Eagles take us to the top of the hour in ESPN Sports on 104.3 The Fan.